This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. NPR is doing its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. Please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. We would really love and appreciate your help and support for NPR podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. Thank you very much. At the end of the day, it's so much information out there, like for you to still be considering it a drug, a harsh drug and all that kind of stuff is just really idiotic. Welcome to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams. And that was my guest today, Al Harrington, talking about marijuana. But let me get back to that in a second. You see, as one of New Jersey's all time greats, Al is a legend, but he's also a local basketball hero to me. I grew up in a small town called Plainfoot, New Jersey, but Al went to a high school in Elizabeth, New Jersey called St. Pat's, only about 15 minutes away from me. You see, I grew up going to Al's games, studying him, viewing all of his tactics on and off the court, because I knew that one day he was going to have a chance to play with the best in the world. And he was, because in the year 1998, he was drafted directly out of high school And at the age of 18, got a chance to play for Larry Bird and Reggie Miller's all-time Indiana Pacers. He played 16 seasons in the league, but his game matured and evolved year by year to him turning into one of the bigs that revolutionized the way the game is played from sides and shooting. Harrington over Bell. Just did beat the shot clock. Now look, I could talk about Al's game forever. Trust me, I studied it like I said before. But today's conversation, it's not about basketball. At least not completely. It's about what he opened up with, marijuana. Let me break this down to you. Since 2011, Al has managed and operated a cannabis company called Viola. Dope name, huh? They make high quality product and their goal is to open up the legalized industry to black entrepreneurs some of whom were once targeted and profiled by police for marijuana-related reasons. Check out what he had to say. People from our community have seen so much harm, man. Like, you know, they've used that, they've used cannabis to lock us up for more than pretty much any other thing in our community. If you're a Black person in America, it isn't easy to just start selling marijuana legally. First of all, there's the red tape around getting a cannabis license. Trust me, I have been through the process and I got denied. But there's also years of blatantly racist policies that have led to the disproportionate mass incarceration of millions of black and brown people on weed-related offenses. These policies go back several decades. Let me break this whole thing down for you. I'm going to take you back, way back to the 1930s, following the end of prohibition in the U.S. The first head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Harry J. Anslinger, branded marijuana a dangerous drug that incited violence, despite copious scientific evidence to the contrary. He also racialized its use, going after people of color and the jazz age icons of the time. Once that seed was planted, the American war on drugs became embedded into nearly every modern presidency. 
When campaigning in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan said this. Marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most dangerous drug in the United States. And we Check this out. His administration's policies on mandatory minimum prison sentences for marijuana ravaged black and brown communities. And we're still seeing those effects today. The ACLU reports that as of 2018, black people are 3.64 more times likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people, despite similar usage rates, a number that has remained largely unchanged, even after cannabis has become increasingly legal around the country. Now, why am I telling you all this? Jay, why are you giving me all these stats? Because frankly, I believe that people have the right to use marijuana legally and responsibly. You see, after my accident, I became addicted to a much more dangerous drug, a painkiller called Oxycontin. And cannabis actually helped me deal with the anxiety and the pain in a much more healthier way. I also believe it's about damn time that black entrepreneurs get a sizable stake in the legal cannabis industry. Estimated in 2020 to be worth $20 billion, by the way. And that number is expected to grow tenfold in the next decade. And like I said, that's Al's greater mission with this company, Viola. He's making a space for black entrepreneurs to get multiple seats, multiple seats at the table. And he's overcoming the stigma of weed through the education and understanding of local communities. Here's my conversation with Al Harrington. So for people who don't know who my guy is on the other end here, let me just tell a quick story, Al. I remember being in eighth grade, and the year is 1998, 97, 98. And I'm born and raised in Plainfield, New Jersey. And all this talk, all I keep hearing about is St. Pat's High School, St. Patrick's High School in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And I remember going over to check out a game and I remember seeing you play and I remember thinking to myself, damn, like this is, I have a long way to go. Like I have a very, if I want to achieve the level of playing in the NBA, I got a long way to go. And it's just crazy that I find myself, you know, 30 years later doing an interview with you, obviously after you have set an incredible career in the league, now what you're doing with your business in Viola. And uh, I just want to say congratulations and thank you for setting the bar really high because it gave me something to chase after. And I just want to kick it off by saying that to you, brother. No, nah, bro, that means a lot, man. You know, obviously with us being from Jersey, you know, obviously we stick together. And, you know, I've always been a huge fan of yours. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, a lot of people, obviously they do know because, you know, your body of work definitely spoke for obviously from high school being an All-American to being an All-American at Duke. And, you know, you would have definitely been, I feel like a Hall of Famer, you know, if things would have been different. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, so hearing that from someone like you means a lot, bro. So I appreciate that. Well, thank God I had situations like the Roadrunners where you and Dante Jones would pick on me sometimes. And, you know, that was cool. That was fun, though. I was, I was a little guy, man. So, Al, look, before we get into Viola and the whole cannabis industry, I want to tell you a little bit of background about my mom. So my mom has gone through two kidney transplants, uh, congestive heart failure. She's had diverticulitis. I mean, literally, man, she's been through the gauntlet. And, you know, when you go through a kidney transplant, there, there's so much red tape you have to go through in order to qualify for it. And the amount of prescription medication that they have you take on a day-to-day -day basis so your body doesn't reject the outside organ, the alien organ that actually isn't yours and accepts it, it's phenomenal, man. 24 pills a day, Al, 24 pills a day. 
So we started having conversations and a lot of her uh, projected fears were about the incarceration rates and a lot of those things. And I'm like, mom, this is going to help you relax as it relates to your anxiety. It's going to take a lot of swelling out of your body. And for me, when I was 17 now, when I had my first hit of a joint and probably late to the game on it, but I mean, I, I was just stuck on the couch for three right. hours. I just wanted right. to chill out and watch movies and I and be in my zone. Like, when was the first time that you actually smoked marijuana, man? What was that feeling like for you the first time it happened? So the very first time I smoked marijuana was with uh, Golden State Warriors. So you were in uh, the league. We, I was in the league. It was the last game of the season. So what happened was, you know, we had just had the We Believe season the year before we beat Dallas. Eight mm-hmm. seed beat the first time to beat a one seed in the seven game series. Next year we come back, we're confident. We like, we about to win the championship. We almost traded for KG that year. It was like a lot. We had a lot going on. We ended up bringing C-Web in. And when we bought C-Web in, it was like a tr- transition of like, trying to get him a customer. I think we lost like four or five games in a row trying to, you know, incorporate him into the team. So long story short, we get down to the end of the year and we needed the Clippers to beat the Denver Nuggets. And then all we had to do was beat Phoenix the next day and we would have got in, right? And we have been kicking Phoenix behind all that year, right? So we felt confident that we could beat Phoenix that because Monte Ellis was, he I'll never forget that year. Like the way he was abusing Steve Nash. He just abused him every time we saw him. Like we Al, just he gave was him the ste- ball he and was got Steph out the before way. Steph, Al. He was yeah, Steph right. before Steph, man. <laughs> we it's just wild. got out the way and let him go, you know? So we're sitting there at the at the restaurant and we're watching the game and the Clippers was the Clippers at the time. And of course they lose. So we know that our fate, our season is over. We won 48 games. We're all upset. So we go back to the room and uh, they like, you know, we had been drinking, so they like, we're smoking. They like, how you smoking tonight, man? The season over, man. You're going to smoke with us one time. So I'm like, all right, cool. So I hit it. And same thing, bro. Like, I just, I went, we were supposed to go out. I didn't go out. I went to my room and I was so paranoid, bro. I was in my head the whole night, bro. I'm thinking, like, I hear like sirens. I'm thinking the police coming to the hotel, like, because they smelled the weed. I'm just like completely bugging out. And I'll never forget, like, the next day when I saw them, I was like, Yo, y'all smoke to feel like that? I'm like, I'm cool. Y'all ain't gotta worry about including me to no more sessions. You know what I'm saying? So that was that was that was my very first time smoking, man. And um, obviously it, it changed. I've obviously tried it again. And you know, it's kind of to what you were saying about your mom too, about once again about stigma. And I think that that's why it's so important that we uh, we and we uh, accept. Uh, the legal uh, the legalization of cannabis, right? Because there's also still that black market world, right, where um, plants are being grown any old kind of way, right, and just being delivered to the market, and people are sometimes smoking and having issues, right. But when you talk about legal cannabis, it's tested. You know what I'm saying? All these things, all these steps are in there to make sure, like, that the product that is being delivered to these to our customers. It's healthy and safe for them to be able to consume. And I think that's a, a huge thing. And then, you know, even with within the kids from our community, a lot of times, like, people don't understand, like, why does Jay want to smoke and just sit on the couch and zone out, right? But people don't understand because, you know, one of the things I always say, like, we never go to doctors, right? Like, even as an athlete, I went, you know, we got physicals every year. I had to catch myself all the time, like, Al, go get a physical because I'm scared of the doctor still. Like, I just feel like it's always bad. It's always bad news. You know what I'm saying? That's but, facts. We deal with shit, bro. Like, we deal with stuff all the time, man. And I always say, like, that cannabis is what allows him to relax and kind of get away from what he's dealing with at that time or allows him to cope. 
You understand what I'm saying? Because it's either that, it's alcohol, it's pills, or it's way more dangerous things. You understand what I'm saying? And when you look at those that whole list of things, I think cannabis will be right on top. There's something that you would prefer for people that you love. You know what I'm saying? You know, one thing we could see changing since marijuana has been legalized is that your everyday corner guy has now become a distributor for a legitimized multi-billion dollar business, right? And it feels to me a big part of your mission is to put ownership in their hands. So tell me, Al, how have you been able to build a foundation for your business? Where did that come from and how did it originate? That's a great question, you know, and I tell us people this all the time. Like, you know, obviously when I first started 11 years ago, like, you know, right, you know, in the league, always like, you know, do summer internship programs with this company and this this person and this billionaire and all that kind of stuff. And I did a lot of that stuff. Right. So I had unbelievable relationships. And when I became more open to about what I was doing, I would definitely reach out to them and ask for advice. And hmm. they had nothing for me. Right. They're like, I actually wouldn't do that. Hmm. <laughs> I would actually shut down the business and do something else where you, you know, lose everything that you, you know, you built, you know, throughout your career. So for me, it pushed me like to, to the people in the community, right. The people that I've known that, you know, definitely have been able to build, you know, their fortunes and stuff off of, you know, hustling essentially is what we call it from where we from, right. With this hustling. Mm-hmm. And when I would reach out to them and I would ask them for advice around like, why were they so successful? Why was it so consistent? Why you've had a 20 year run since I've known you. And what they always told me was that good product sells itself. <laughs> it was like, if you got good product, it will sell itself. And that's why, you know, our company really focuses on quality, you know what I'm saying? And purpose. Right. And I've seen that because we've been able to do that. That's why a company like mine, who is still considered small, like we may be the largest black owned, you know, uh, MSO in the country, but our business is still small considered to a lot of our competitors. Right. But we've also, you know, been able to be around for 11 years. And a lot of people can't say that. I know people that bought and came into the industry with 50, 100, 200 million dollars and literally out of business in 24 months. You know what I'm saying? But I think that because we stuck and stayed true to that, to making sure that we had quality product. And we stay true to our purpose, which is about uplifting, educating, empowering people of color. I feel like our community and other communities are definitely supported what we're doing because I think that they feel that what we're doing is really organic. And like I said, the product is really good. Now, I, I am so curious. What specific moments in your career in the league do you think shaped your mentality as a businessman today? Uh, honestly, I you know I think what shaped my whole career was was kind of something that I did, right? And it was when I first walked in the locker room uh, when I was playing for the Pacers and seeing like Reggie Miller and Dale Davis and Jalen Rose and all those guys, right? Heroes of mine, right? Mm. But seeing those guys, the first thing I thought was, you know, you know how we are from Jersey, we cocky and just we confident. I'm like, I'm better than all of them. <laughs> right, I'm like, I'm hands down better than them, bro. Like, I gotta play. Like, this is crazy. And you know, got in a training camp, and I quickly learned that I was not better than them. Right, mm. but because of that, you know, talking to like guys like Chris Mullen and you know Reggie as well, and you know uh, 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 Mark Jackson, they really started to like talk to me about like what it took to survive and to be a pro and to make it, and it was all about hard work. And it was about being the first one in the gym and the last one to leave. You know what I'm saying? Like really taking your craft very seriously, like always trying to add something to your game every single year. 
And after that, for me, the one thing that going into every summer, I would just think like, okay, we about to draft a new player, right? I don't know what position yet, but if he is three or four, he's probably going to walk in that locker room and look around and say, Al Harrington? I'm better than him. I'm going to get those minutes. So that was something that for me, just it always, I just always remembered that. And I was just like, I'm never going to let a young guy, somebody come and take my spot. I don't care where they coming from. I don't care. And I feel like that's something that is the reason why you look at my game, it, it evolved, right? I went from a guy that couldn't really shoot well to becoming a knockdown shooter. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I first couldn't, you know, learning how to post and really get get my post game off in the league. Every year, I feel like I added to my game and I take that into the business world. Like in cannabis, I've been in this 11 years and I feel like if I continue to stay the same, then eventually people will pass me by. Just like if the game didn't evolve, you know, the guys that played like this, you know what I'm saying? Like, We'd all be still playing like that, but now we're doing quick step backs. They're doing side steps, all kind of – it just it continues to evolve. So that's how I look at my business. Every year we got to get better. We got to come up with a new offering. We got to – and we got to outwork the next person. No matter how much of a lead we think we got, no matter how much we think we're on this pedestal, we got to keep raising the bar. So I would just say, like, you know, just that mindset of just knowing, like, you can never get comfortable because as soon as you get comfortable – Here's somebody come taking your spot. And that's how I look at this in the cannabis space. I want to stay in the top spot. And, you know, that's how that's how I not only do I work, but everybody that works for me. I'm smiling because I know this is not the first time in your career or your life that you had to sell product, right? Because you came out with your own shoe brand, the Protégé. Dog, I remember that, man, like like yesterday. How how was, what was that experience like, Al? And and, and what are some facets of how you had to go to market with that product that are similar to the process in which you had to go to market with Viola? Yeah, man, you know, to your point, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, to be all the way honest, the person that inspired me to even do that was Stefan Marbury when he came out with the Starberry. You know, seeing the success that he had and the fact that, you know, he was catering to a niche. And, you know, I think that to your point, it's like if you're going to launch any business, you need to try to figure out, like, how are you fixing a problem? Right. Mm-hmm. And the problem that we have, once again, in our community is we just don't have a lot. We don't have two hundred and fifty dollars to buy Jordans. You know what I'm saying? Nothing wrong with Jordan charging that because people that can afford it buy it. But everybody can't demand. afford it. You know yes. what I'm saying? There's a demand. Everybody can't afford it. So what about the kids that can't afford it? What about the kids that? Because there's no Al Harrington attaching himself to a shoe or Stephon Marbury that when they buy this other Jewish, we from Jersey, we call them Jeepers. You buy Jeepers that nobody know. And it's like, you don't feel good about it, right? You going to school with Velcro shoes on the front. You know what I'm saying? You're like, damn, my man got all joy. It's like, you can't feel good about yourself. You know what I'm saying? So what I felt like was the niche was like, let's make some cool shoes. Let's, be, let's put NBA players, attach it to it. So that when kids wear those shoes for $35, they feel empowered. Because now when I go to school, yeah, you got on the Jordan. But yeah, Al, these Al Harrington's. Yeah, he in the league too. These Steven Jackson. Exactly. Or Fat Joe wear these. You know what I'm saying? And like, you know, I just feel like everything that I've done, like, is just always in all my business has always been about the people. You know, and I feel like because it's, it's selfless, it's not about me. You know, I always say I've had all my experiences because I was able to play in the NBA for all the time that I was able to play, right? So I've flown on private planes. I've done the nice vacations. I bought jewelry. I bought cars. Now what, right? How can I take my life experiences and share with others? You know what I'm saying? And, like, that's how I look at it. And, like, that's why I say with 
Viola is in purpose. It, it, it's all about, that's why we do so many different events and stuff like that to allow people to experience, as we call it, the Viola lifestyle. You know what I'm saying? Which is something that we feel like is all attainable for all of us. You know what I'm saying? And the fact that the same product that I'm offering you, I smoke the same thing. You know what I'm saying? I, I use the same products. You know what I'm saying? So that's always the connection that I try to have is just trying to make sure that it's always about community first. Never get comfortable, no matter how good you are. Stay ahead of the rookies. Keep it about the people and the community. Damn, Al Harrington is dropping gems left and right, and I'm here for it. After the break, we get into the stigma that marijuana still carries today, including in the league. Al talks about the early days of Viola and how he overcame cannabis stereotypes. This is The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. You care about what's happening in the world. Let's State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. The Bullseye Podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. Al Harrington is going to tell a story here that I can definitely relate to. You know, one day I was headed to a meeting on Sunset. And I got pulled over and I was in my Rolls Royce. And I know if I had on shorts, I had on like shorts. It probably was a little too small that I should have been wearing. I was feeling myself that day in a T-shirt. <laughs> you had in the right? high thigh shorts? Yeah, yeah. I was feeling myself, bro, that's the day, right? So literally I get pulled over and, you know, the cop comes to the window, hand on his gun, asking for license registration. I give it to him. Then he's like, get out the car. And I'm like, why am I get out the car? He's like, put your hand out the car, open the door and get out the car. Get out the car. Literally puts me in handcuffs throws me up against the wall and I'm like, what the hell? So he literally does all of this because he's saying that I don't have a tag on my car. I had a new, you know, the new car tag thing or whatever on it. And I'm just like, bro, like, what is the problem? You know what I'm saying? And it's just like to the point of like, I was just having this conversation with somebody the other day. Like, it's crazy as a 42 year old man. And I feel like I definitely can handle myself in any physical altercation. The fact mm -hmm. that whenever I see street, I mean, police lights that I become a sissy. Like, I'm so yes. afraid, and that's crazy. And, like, why do I have to feel like that? Why do we have to feel like that? Being targeted by the police as a black person in America is always a gut-wrenching fear, no matter how far we've come. 
Plus, the stigma that marijuana carries for black men in particular in and out of the league definitely made Al cautious when thinking about starting a cannabis company to begin with. But then he saw his grandmother struggle with the pain of glaucoma, who, like my mom, was very hesitant to try marijuana for pain relief. He needed a plan to educate from within, talking about the medical benefits of marijuana with none other than church elders. Here's how Al has battled the limits of marijuana stereotypes in building a successful cannabis company. I got addicted to oxycodone and oxycotton, and um, it really set my life into a dark place for a while after I got hurt with my in- injury and couldn't play basketball again, had to learn how to walk and run. And obviously, I always experienced pain in my left leg. I've dropped foot. I had a complete knee dislocation, tore every ligament in my knee, uh, separate my pubic symphysis by about 13 inches. And I was trying to find an alternative form for pain management. Now, I had smoked marijuana here and there throughout my short stint in college in the NBA, but I really got into it after I was coming out of my addiction phase because I I didn't want to abuse something, but I didn't want to stay addicted to that type of medication. And I found out for me that marijuana was the key in helping me alleviate a lot of my pain, a lot of the swelling in my leg. Um, and even as it related to my the energy, like my mentality, I, I felt happier. And I'm not talking about smoking a whole joint, right? I'm talking about for me, frankly, taking a hit or two here or there at nighttime to relax, to calm down from some of my anxiety that I have. But it was a godsend. But I was still so afraid to talk about it because of the stereotypes associated with me being a young black male, a guy that played in the NBA, and you know how media loves to frame people in that scenario where it's like, oh, you're doing weed, right? Uh, You're doing drugs. How did you learn how to just navigate that stereotype when you first started getting involved in it? Um, honestly, I'm be, you know, to be 1000% honest, I was afraid in the beginning too, right? This was something that I was doing, but, you know, I definitely didn't bring it up in every room that I went into, right? But the more and more I got comfortable with understanding like the medicinal benefits of it and that, you know, the stigma behind it was like completely false. I felt like the opportunity that was in front of me was that I could be one of the people to change the narrative. You know what I'm saying? And when you think about like these are legacy opportunities, right? You know, obviously, you know, with basketball is one thing, but when you could talk about like really changing people's lives for the better and really helping, you know, I just think that that's just a whole nother lane. You know, I, I definitely feel like sports definitely heals. You know, every time it seems like our country go through something, you know, sports is kind of thing that brings it back together. But I feel the same thing about the cannabis plant. You know, I really feel like the cannabis plant, uh, is a natural healer and it can, it can, it fosters community, right? Because I think about hmm. there's so many people that I'm actually friends with now because of sharing a joint. It's amazing to me. You know what I mean? Even some guys that I battle with in the NBA, I always use Paul Pierce as an example, a guy that I really couldn't stand my whole career until I found out that he smokes weed. And the next thing you know, we became best friends. You know what I'm saying? So I just really feel like it does that. And then, you know, for me, where I finally started to take that step was, you know, being an entrepreneur. And when you get done playing, you know, obviously people always kind of want to put you in a box and say, coach. You know what I mean? And, you know, that's Hmm. something that's very natural, right? Because we are experts. But, you know, a lot of times, you know, when you, you know, with the things that we know about it, it's like, you know, they don't really value ex-players the way that they should, at least less pressure when I retire. You know, I think now it's definitely become 
it's changing a lot. You, you see all so many ex-players being hired as head coaches, like, you know, shout out to Darvin Ham getting his opportunity. So it's definitely changed. But I remember when I first retired, you know, God bless the dead, Flip Saunders called and offered me a job in Minnesota as a um, mm-hmm. as a player development coach, and he offered me $75,000. And, you know, I'm a guy coming off a $10 million contract. Mm-hmm. I'm like, coach, that ain't even going to pay my rent. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So. I felt like I had to do something else. And I'm like, I don't, I feel like I've, you know, put myself in a position. I don't want to work for anybody. Let me work for myself. So when you think about, you know, the cannabis opportunity, and as I was trying to find my way, you know, eventually I would just mention it, you know, we'd be in a real estate meeting or a technology meeting and everybody's like, well, what everybody's working on. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm actually, I got a small cannabis company and I'm doing this. And it would literally, the whole meeting would shift to me and what I'm doing in this space. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So it made me become more and more comfortable to start talking about it because so many people was interested in what was actually going on in the industry. And, you know, we're talking about 11 years ago when people were still afraid about going to jail. Now you look at the industry, it's wide open. It's being openly sold damn near everywhere. And that was a way easier transition for people to consider. But I remember when I first started talking to, you know, some of the ex-players, some of my teammates and stuff like that, you know, they were like, nah, I'm good. I'm not going to jail. You know, I even lost my financial advisor of my whole career because I decided to go on cannabis. He was like, he's not going to, you know, get arrested helping me um, embezzle money. You know what I'm saying? So just, mm-hmm. and, you know, he was a very old man. So I got it. His mindset, he couldn't understand like what was coming, but I saw it, you know, and I'm happy I did it. You know, it's definitely been a great transition for me. I feel like I found my purpose. I feel like the same kind of attitude and energy I brought to practice into the games i kind of bring that same mindset to this so it's been very fulfilling and like i said so many people we hire so many people we help so many people so this has just been like a dream come true for me do you feel like part of the strategy is and i hear you use technical terms right as it relates to cannabis i still hear it called weed Right. on national tv <laughs> right you know what i'm talking about and there's right, right. such a negative connotation with it do you find that part of your strategy is to approach it from a technical perspective this way you teach about the medicinal purposes of marijuana yeah definitely i mean we do that but then you know you still have some people that are still going to be like you know ignorant to the we because <laughs> at the end of the day it's so much information out there like for you to still be considering it a drug a harsh drug and all that kind of stuff is just really idiotic Right. Uh, pharmaceutical drugs to the point of you talking about addiction, that's dangerous. Those drugs that are made in those in those labs is what's very dangerous and addictive and the opioids and different things like that. But I get it, man. Like, you know, when I think about just the war on drugs, you know, people from our community have seen so much harm and like, you know, they've used that. They've used cannabis to lock us up for more than pretty much any other thing in our community. Something that we never own. What I mean by that is we never own farms. We never own trucking companies to get it there. You know, most of this product comes from California and how they end up in New Jersey. But nobody along that chain ever was affected. It was only the people that were in the communities. And, you know, you just look at New York as a prime example. Like since New York has decriminalized um, cannabis, uh, drug arrest is down 90 percent in New York. You know what I'm saying? So that just goes to show you right there that like they you they literally use a plant that we uses just as much as our counterparts, the people that have the opposite skin of us without the melanin, and they were not affected the same way. You know what I'm saying? So obviously, you know, I get why, you know, my grandmother in the beginning, why she couldn't wrap her head around it. 
Like, what are you doing? My mom, I get it because my um, I've had uncles. I have little cousins that have been locked up for cannabis. You know what I'm saying? So we've just seen so much harm. I always say it's like our form of PTSD that we have to get past so that we can understand like all the benefits of what this plant really can provide for us and our community. Has being in the industry for 11 years now, like you said, has it affected any relationships you've had with people in your life? I'm just curious, like, do do you think people perceive you differently or do you think that's all kind of um, dissipated now? Yeah, just the most negative one was just my old, my my business manager, um, you know, uh, God bless the dead, he passed uh, last year, but name was Billy Wilcoxon and, you know, older gentleman from Ohio, lived in Lexington, Kentucky, was on the board of Kentucky and all that kind of stuff. And just obviously super conservative and he just couldn't wrap his head around what I was doing and the, and the space. He just felt like it was never going to go legal. I was going to end up in jail and probably have him going to jail with me because we were taking in cannabis dollars. But outside of that, man, like, you know, I, I, I just think about, it's been such, it's been on a handful of people that have been really negative. I mean, like one time a Uber driver <laughs> in Colorado, <laughs> somehow we, we was talking and I told him what I was doing and we got into an argument in the car and he was like telling me I'm killing people and I'm hurting people. You know what I'm saying? So, but outside of that, man, I think that, you know, most people I talk to have definitely, you know, let their guard down. I feel like my grandmother's story, the story of how I got into this space, um, it opens up a lot of doors because, you know, once again, when I think about the people that I have to talk to going into these communities and talking to church leaders, because those are the main people that hold up votes, right? The church control everything, right? Especially mm-hmm. in our community and being able to go in there and talk to the preachers and talk to the elders and talk to the, you know, the women of the church. And tell them my grandmother's story because my grandmother, you know, she was one of them, you know, and she still is one of them. You know, she's still alive. But, you know, for her to be at the time 89 years old and being willing enough to open minded enough to try cannabis for her glaucoma pain. And literally two and a half hours later, I go and check on her and she's downstairs reading a book, crying, reading a Bible, saying the first time she's seen the words in the Bible in over three years. It just it, I just it, it breaks down barriers. Right. And, you know. And she's certified, I always say, because if she's not going to heaven, we're none of us going there. We're all going to hell for sure. You know what I'm saying? And for her to try it, and now it's part of her daily regimen. You know, when she get up, she has dementia. She now has, you know, bladder cancer, but she still takes her her, her, uh, her bait pen and her RSO oil every single day. You know what I'm saying? She has a better quality of life, and I just feel like everybody should have access to that. After the break, Al gets into the importance of one of Viola's central missions, black ownership in the cannabis industry. Plus, he talks me through his preferred strains of marijuana and what to ask for when you go into the dispensary. This is The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. Stay with us. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. 
Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened, we tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. Last week on The Limits Plus, my guest John Gray of Ghetto Gastro had this to say about black creators, which really stuck with me. So often what we do is we create a lot of value and we don't capture the value. So I think for me, that's the legacy I want to leave behind. Value creation and value capture. John is saying that we're so often behind some of the biggest commercial successes, and yet we don't get to take home the bag or get a seat at the actual table. Al Harrington is trying to create proper value capture for black entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry, especially those who have been in the game and are trying to make their enterprises legal. Here's what Al had to say. I know before I read in an article that you have a plan uh, for just to create 100 black cannabis millionaires. Take me through the steps of how you make that happen, Al. Yeah, so you know, I, I was uh, I always tell people this little story that you know I was just on the board of uh, you know one of the biggest you know retail you know considered conglomerates in the space, and you know I remember you know we'd be on board meetings and we'd be cutting deals with certain companies and stuff like that, and one of the deals we cut um, was with a company that they were on our call our team our board was considering the LVMH of cannabis. And it was so, it made me laugh because obviously I see all the numbers, right? So I know that like this product is, you know, being sold for like $2,000, $2,500 a pound. And that's up and down, right? Depending on the product, right? But when you think about um, the cannabis that's sold in our community, which is sometimes maybe the same product, but just because of the marketing and the bags, how cool we make the bags and, you know, all these different things and the merch that we had tied, you know, to the strains and stuff like that. We sell product in our community for $7,500 a pound. Hmm. So I'm like, that's the LVMH of weed, guys. It's not hmm. this stuff that y'all selling for 2000 That ain't it. It's our community that has the LVMH of weed. You understand what I'm saying? So I'm saying all that to say is like all those brands, all those companies, you know, they need a bridge to get into the legitimate industry because all these guys, what they, they want, they want the American dream, right? They want to have a bank account. They want to be able to go. They want to have good credit. They want to buy a house. They want to be able to buy cars. They want to be able to live in the open and doing what they're doing. So I just feel like, you know, those, and I'm not, they're, they're not considered black market brands to me. They're called, they're gray market brands, right? They're just on the cusp, just waiting for the right opportunity so that they can go legal. And like, that's something that I want to be able to do. You know what I'm saying? Through my network and through my resources. And as I continue to do these strategic partnerships around the country with some of these bigger uh, cultivation providers, I would like to be able to bring them along and allow them to get on this shelf, you know, like I said, in a legal way. 
And, you know, I know personally that these guys, you know, when they do pop-ups on a weekend for merch that is like on Hanes, T-shirts, ironed on, they'll make $200,000, $250,000 in a weekend. You know what <laughs> I'm saying? So these guys have real brands and real followings. And all I want to do is be able to elevate that. All right. So take me through the process, Al, because I'm really fascinated by it. I, I tried to go through this process of applying for a cannabis license in New Jersey and had some pretty powerful people on board and got rejected, right? Um, now, the oh. people that uh, actually uh, were allowed to have the license, nobody looked like me, which I found to be interesting. Uh, but now I live in Connecticut. So okay. it, it's still That's in the next. process of, yep, exactly. Yeah. If, if I wanted to be part of the Viola brand, right, how would I go about that process here in Connecticut? I mean, granted, give me the high-level version. You don't have to get into the nuances yeah, yeah, yeah. about all the legislation. But I'm just cur- curious from a starting position. Yeah. So to your point, you know, that's what we do. Right. So when we look at like going into new states, like uh, the application process has so many, as you know, it's so many different verticals within it. Right. And you cover everything from like security, design, uh, community redevelopment, all these different things. Right. Um, I've done like in in Missouri, I used uh, Larry Hughes as my partner there, him and his, mm. and his, uh, his best friend, Abe. And why we did that was because we wanted to be strategic, right? As we go into these communities, we want to be able to help and rebuild, right? But how do we do that if we're not from there? If we've never experienced nothing there, we don't know nothing about the community. That's why it frustrates me when these companies that, you know, have a social equity component on their license and they get perfect scores when they don't look like us. How do they know what we need? How do they know how they can have an impact in this state when they've never actually been there? So what we do is I do I, I, I join with local partners, right? Someone like yourself. So with Connecticut coming up, we will be looking for a partner there. You know what I'm saying? I will be calling and them. I'm, and I'll call my guy, somebody that I'm friends with that I know, and I know I know your spirit. You know what I'm saying? So I know that everything that we're about is aligned with who you are. You understand what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. that's how we normally do it. And then that process everywhere is different. You know, some states you have to... You know, going and 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 being in control of the real estate, which costs a lot of money sometimes. And this is all at risk capital, as you know. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much you spent on your first license, but I remember the first license we did in New Jersey. We spent over two hundred thousand dollars, and we came in like two hundredth place. You know what I'm saying? But at that point was when I realized what the opportunity was, and I really went and built out a team. And since then, we've won nine licenses. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So. You know, putting that strong team together of, you know, strong, influential people that can go have conversations at the highest level, you know, like with New York, you know, a lot of that legislation, you know, I was there helping, you know, uh, facilitate a lot of that information to those people. You know what I'm saying? That now when you look at New York, I feel like New York probably has the best approach to social equity in regards to the state and the government is actually putting up a lot of the money so that these people do have a real chance to actually be successful because everywhere else is not like that. It's kind of like, okay, we're going to give you a license, but if you're a social, if you're a true social equity applicant, which means that you come from a community that was affected, right? Which means the hood, um, you've had to been locked up before, uh, you have to have had, uh, jobs where you made less than $50,000. How are you going to go out and raise millions of dollars to operate a business? How are you even really investable? You understand what I'm saying? Without having certain mm-hmm. things around you to be able to do that, because all they're doing is giving us these licenses so that we can go and struggle to open it. If we, for some reason, miraculous reason, get it to open, the first issue we have, we're out of business, and now we're selling those licenses to our counterparts for pennies on a dollar. 
So that's not the purpose. The purpose was for it to be an equitable opportunity for us to be able to have a participation in this generational wealth and for us to be in charge of rebuilding our own community. You know what I'm saying? And then, you know, when you think about even the zoning, right, in the black communities, right, which they do all the time, all the churches and schools and, and liquor stores are all around our community. So with zoning, you have to be a thousand feet away from one of those three things. But each one of those things is on every single block in our community. So once again, you don't even allow us to bring the business into our community where we can control the narrative and can control, to your point, the hiring. Because naturally, you hire people that look like you. Most times, you hire people that look like you. You hire people mm-hmm. that you feel comfortable with. So that's why when we get these opportunities, we want them to be within our community. You know what I'm saying? Just the way that the Chinese people have all the liquor stores. If cannabis, we want black people to own the cannabis stores within our community so we can be in charge of the education and creating the jobs and giving back and different things like that. Okay, two-part question here coming along very quickly. And I I know there are a ton of blends, but I'm going to keep it simplified out there for our people that don't know all the different strains of marijuana. Are you a sativa or indica guy? I'm an indica guy because for me, I like to relax. Um, You know, that's what I use. That's what I use cannabis for, for for the most part is to cope and to deal with some of my bumps and bruises throughout my career. Sativas, two strong sativas make my heart race. And it definitely makes mm-hmm. me a little, give me a little bit of paranoia. So once again, I always say that's the journey. That's the beauty about cannabis. Cause like a lot of times I'd be like, I smoked one time and this happened and I'm never doing it again. And it's like, no, that's not it. You got to look at it more like when you first time you drank vodka and then you drank tequila, then you drank whiskey. You got to find out which one is for you. You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of the beauty of the, uh, of cannabis. It's kind of that same kind of mindset. All right. So I, uh, I went to my first dispensary about three years ago in Colorado. I was blown away. I did not know what the hell to ask. I'm, I'll be honest with you, Al. I, I pretty much bought everything. I was like, oh, I'll take right. that. I'll try this. I'll try that. So for a novice that goes into right. a dispensary for the first time, what type of questions should I be asking? Uh, it depends. Like I said, you know, if you, wh- why are you going in there, right? Are you just going in just for, you know, recreational use? You want to have a good time? Uh, so are you going in there because you have aches and pains? You're going in there because you have anxiety? Mm-hmm. So it usually just depends on, like, you know, what is bringing you in it for the first time, right? But, you know, normally I would say it's like, take it slow, right? You know, uh, if you want to do an edible because you're afraid of smoking, like, Ask for edibles that are microdose, right? So that you can, mm-hmm. you know, test it and start with a 2.5 and then a 5 and 15, 10, 20, whatever, to get to your point where it gets puts you in cruise control. You know what I'm saying? So I think just asking questions and just being very open around like what you're nervous about. You know what I'm saying? If you have any nervous effects that might be coming or what you, you heard in the past, being open with the butt tenders about that. And normally they have at least some type of information that they can give you to make, you know, make your purchase and make your experience a lot better. I got to be honest. I almost went down a dark hole with the word microdosing, which could have led to a way different story, but I'm going to stop. And I'm going to say, I appreciate you, man. I mean, from knowing you since I've been in seventh grade and and watching you and hooping with you and seeing what you're doing with Viola. Like I, I got to be honest, man. I'm so proud of you, dude. (laughs) I love you, bro. Thank you, man. You too, Al. All right. I'd like to give a big shout out to my big bro, Al Harrington, and his team for making this interview possible. You can find locations where Viola products are sold on violabrands.com. And we're back Thursday with a bonus episode for the Limits Plus subscribers, where Al and I ask, how do we talk about marijuana with our kids? Until then, stay positive, And remember, let's keep it moving. The Limits is produced by Karen Kinney. 
Mano Sunderason, Lena Sunsgeri, Barton Girdwood, Yolanda Sanguini. Our executive producer is Anya Grunman. Music by Ramteen Arab Louie. Special thanks to Danielle Soto, Christina Hardy, Rudy Correa, and Charlie Ribby. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR.